just start recording. Hi, uh, my name is Marie Lament. I'm the project coordinator at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, welcome to the Human Rights Talk podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to host um, Dr. Irene Matley, a research fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations, and she specializes in security and defense policy and transatlantic relations. Thank you so much for um, being here today, Eileen Matley. Thanks for having me, Marie. It's a pleasure. So our audience is quite North American. Um, could you perhaps explain the term um, Zeitenwende, which we have heard here a little bit, but not, not, we don't really know what it is. What does it mean? That's a very good question. And I'm not sure I have a definitive answer to that question, but I'll try my best. So the term Zeitenwende loosely translates into sea change or turning point. And in my mind and interpretation, the term rather describes the state of affairs that we're witnessing and the ensuing processes since the 24th of February when Russia invaded Ukraine, rather than a playbook, playbook for concrete actions. And some of the decisions that were taken since and some of the measures that have been introduced in response to, to that change of sort of, you know, circumstances, the change in the security environment due to Russia's war of aggression, they do, do amount and do equal, you know, in, to some extent significant changes. However, I would not see them as revolutionary altogether, as I've also tried to explain in a War on the Rocks piece that I published early, earlier this year, where I tried to sort of to map out what Zeitenwende, yeah, it could mean and what it doesn't mean. So I hope that at least, you know, sort of to get our conversation started um, gives you an idea of what Zeitenwende could mean. And how, I mean, when the, when the war, the invasion started, we were all shocked, including here in, in North America. But how, how did it change? Did the invasion change kind of Germany's foreign defense policy? Is it something that we're seeing on a short-term basis, perhaps? Or do you think it will be, have a long-term kind of impact and, and, and influence? I think it will have a mid or medium to long-term influence as well. However, in my mind, it is way too early to tell what kind of um, influence um, that will bear on, on Germany's defense and security policy. I mean, there are some indicators that we can turn to already now. And one of the first benchmarks to sort of to measure a possible change against is, is the announcement and possible implementation of the so-called special fund and the so-called Sondervermögen worth 100 billion euros that is supposed to sort of modernize and update Germany's armed forces, which have been neglected in the recent past, in the past years and to some extent, even decades. And it's, I mean, I wouldn't say that everything sort of, that everything should just center on, on, on that money and how the money is spent, but certainly it is, especially with regards to the defense part, you know, Germany's defense policies, I think it is sort of indicative of how serious Germany is about 
you know, permanently changing its security and defense policies and it's really permanently waking up to completely changed um, realities um, in in Europe, um, um, so to speak. And it's, I mean, again, in some respects, it's still too early to tell, but it's already clear now that the projects that the Ministry of Defense puts together um, in order so to put together for um, for the special fund, that some of those will not even be able to uh, to be realized because the money just won't be enough. Mm-hmm. Some of that um, is down to inflation because you know some of the projects and some of the acquisitions that were planned for are just now much uh, much more expensive than initially thought um, in the beginning. Um, of you know February uh, in the beginning of March and April when the list was put together, so uh, I guess that's I mean that doesn't mean that the money won't do um, anything good that it won't help um, Germany's armed forces to be reinvigorated, but I think that's already um, sort of telling that from you know that in the beginning you know. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced, you know, in his Zeitmanner speech, this, you know, special fund, which many people in Germany, but also abroad, pinned their hopes on and thought, okay, now, you know, you know, Germany has now woken up to new realities. Now, you know, much will change. Well, I'm not so sure about that because now we're, you know, sort of, um, sort of getting into sort of murky waters of, um, of bureaucracy, of how the money will, um, will actually be spent. So, all in all, I think it's, you know, with regards to the medium and long term, it's too, too, too early to tell. But, um, you know, with regards to the short term, we can already see that some of the some, some of the momentum that we saw right after the invasion, so the polit- political momentum is somewhat being fizzled out. Mm. And I mean, I understand and I read German, so I listen to a few podcasts and read the, the debate, debates on, on social media. There seems to be a lot of debates between politicians or they nobody seems to be quite to have to have a clear position. What was the reaction to Zeitenbender within um, the political class and among the German population? Is there do they want more weapon delivery or less or is it uh, how comfortable are they? Start with the general population because that might be a bit easier to um, to answer. I think overall we can see that the German population is rather supportive um, of the policies that have been put in place, including the delivery of weapons. And I'd give I'd even go as far as to claim that the general population might be might be further along um, and might be willing to support Ukraine. And um, you know Ukraine's fight against Russia's war of aggression even further than than we're seeing now. Although I I'd also like to point out that we we can see that there are divides on first of the question of heavy weapons, which is a very sort of German debate. I haven't come across that kind of debate in any other European country or the United States or Canada for that matter. And then in addition, we can clearly um, see a geographical divide within Germany um, being, you know, like the East-West divide. In, in Eastern Germany, the support is, you know, on average lower than in, in, Western, uh, in the Western parts of Germany. Then with regards to the, polit- you know, sort of to the political class or the political elite, 
I think there are differences between the political parties. You know, starting with the governing um, coalition, the Korean party is in my mind most forthcoming about um, uh, about supporting Ukraine, including the delivery of weapons. The social Democrat, uh, Democrats are rather hesitant in my mind, especially lawmakers. Um, or well, no, excuse me, especially um, the chancery. Um, you know, with um, German um, Chancellor um, Olaf Scholz, he seems to be a bit more timid, um, or has seemed a bit more timid at times. And then with regards to, to the lawmakers, I think there's a split. You still have the fraction of people around um, Rolf Mützenich, um, for example, who is more, who's more outspoken against um, sending heavy weapons, um, for example, of, you know, um, combat tanks, for example. But then you also have politicians in the German Bundestag, um, for example, Michael Roth, who is um, head of the who's out of the of the sort of the foreign foreign affairs committee and he for example he's very outspoken about um supporting ukraine even further so there's a bit of a split um, within the social democrat uh, social democratic party then you have the liberals who are also part of the governing coalition and overall i'd say they're quite quite supportive as well then when you turn to the opposition with the conservatives, the CDU being the biggest opposition party, they mm. are in parts demanding even more, especially when it comes to heavy weapons, including um, uh, including battle tanks. So I think there's it's really difficult to pin down or to claim that the German elite is saying this and that or is you know in favor of doing this or that because it's just not that black and white. Okay. And in in the, um, I think before the war started, you know, there was a lot of um, doubts about NATO, about the EU, but how do you think um, the invasion and war of aggression will change NATO in the long term and short term, um, especially with perhaps the inclusion or the, uh, of, of, of uh, the involvement of Sweden and Finland? Again, and this might not be, you know, satisfactory um, to to listeners, but I think it's a bit too early to tell what it will do to NATO in the long term. But you know, what is clear, however, already now is that the alliance is preparing to be more poised, not only to deter a possible Russian attack along, especially mm-hmm. along the um, so-called eastern flank, but also to have the forces and the equipment in place to defend allied territory if necessary. And I'm I'm assuming it's it's a sort of you know safe bet that Finland and Sweden will join NATO in in the very near future and with those countries you know becoming part of the alliance it's even it would be even well it would be much easier to to defend the Baltic states although already now you know that they are not member states of the alliance. Mm-hmm. It would be, it would be necessary, for example, to use um, parts of their airspace, and that would be feasible already now because NATO and um, Finland and Sweden have agreed on that um, in in the very re- recent past. But obviously, it does make a difference whether a country is a member state or not, and I think it will only add to sort of to um, to NATO's deterrence posture. 
and also to NATO's defense posture once those countries have joined um, the club. Mm. And have you actually been surprised by by the continued NATO support to Ukraine? Well, in the beginning, um, I thought it wasn't entirely surprising, as we could all witness the run-up to the final Russian aggression, during which time NATO sort of prepared for for that worst-case scenario, and you know debated on on respective uh, on a respective course of action if push were to come to shove. Mm. I'm, you know, sort of nine months into the war i i wouldn't say that i'm surprised um, because it's also i mean it's it's not necessarily nato as a organization but rather mm. the member states that support uh, ukraine militarily rather than nato you know as an organization yeah. so uh, i think it's uh, i mean again we can we can see differences, I think, um, you know, between member states. Some are more eager, some are more vigorous in their support. Um, and I think that will remain the case in, you know, for however long um, the war against Ukraine will last. But overall, I think NATO can be sort of, you know, proud of um, of um, of being able to to withstand any um any sort of any attempts from outside to um, to undermine cohesion within the alliance i think nato really has done um has done um a tremendous job uniting or keeping sort of the unity especially vis-a-vis um, russia but obviously also in terms of uh, rhetorically supporting ukraine and then also on um, you know on sort of a bilateral basis when it comes to material support yeah, I think some people here wish Canada would do a bit more, but or army is I think a bit like Germany's army is not it's not doing that great. So yeah, well, I think I, I can certainly um, speak for Germany, and I know that there are many people here in Germany who wish Germany would do more, especially when it comes to sending battle tanks, which you know has been sort of an ongoing debate in Germany for the past couple of months. Mm. So you, Ukraine is not a, a, a member of NATO, but are there red lines that Russia, do you think, should or would not, should not cross that would, uh, you know, if we want to avoid an escalation of, of, of the response? Is it the use of chemical weapons like they did in Syria, um, for example? Well, I mean, the obvious cause for escalation between NATO and Russia would be a Russian incursion into allied mm. territory. When you know, short of of that um, danger or that possibility, NATO has time and again cautioned Russia in very very clear terms to not even contemplate the use of nuclear or chemical weapons. However, they have, or the alliance has left open how um, how they would react or how single member states would react for example the united states being you know sort of obviously um, next to russia the most um, potent nuclear power um, how they would um, react in case russia were to cross that line and that obviously is part of you know of nato's deterrence strategy to sort of to signal to Russia, don't even dare to sort of to, to cross that line because you wouldn't like how um, how we'd react. 
I personally, however, do not think that were Russia to cross um, that line, that NATO or single member states would react in kind. Mm. They would certainly react and not only rhetorically, I think also, you know, in, in practical matters, um, but I do not think they would um, react in kind. Okay. And for the past one, one final question regarding reaction and escalation. Um, last week, we, uh, there was a missile bl blast in eastern Poland. And in the end, it, so it killed two people. And it was ultimately finally attributed to a Ukrainian air defense missile and not to Russia. But we saw a bit of overreaction, perhaps, uh, in the first kind of hours or two. Um, what can we learn from this incident and, and fears of Russian escalation? Or perhaps do you think the, the, the countries, the U.S. kind of reacted in, a, in, a, in the right way by calming the situation down? Yes, I do think so. That's my short answer. I think it was very wise and prudent to 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 remain level headed and uh, level headed and to remain calm. in In terms of what can we learn, what can, kind of lessons can we draw from that incident? I mean, the most obvious lesson or reminder, um, I think, is that the war is in NATO's immediate vicinity. And that was obviously underscored by last week's um, incident. What we can learn furthermore in practical terms is what I've said in the very beginning, uh, jumping to conclusion, conclusions doesn't help anybody in, um, in such um, a sort of, yeah, in, in such a situa situation that is prone to potentially escalate. And It is comforting in my mind to know that NATO and also its member states were, you know, first and foremost, Poland, that was directly affected by the incident, uh, were able to de-escalate by ways of cautioning against hasty assumptions. And as you already pointed out, for all we know, it wasn't Russian, a Russian planned attack or even an accidental um, incursion into Polish territory, but rather a misguided Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile. However, um, as long as Russia wages war against Ukraine, the danger mm. of intended or unintended um, escalation remains. Mm. So ultimately, I'm, you know, I'm really glad and, and happy to, to, to know that it is possible to, to de-escalate and that NATO is in fact very much interested in, in pursuing such a course of action. But ultimately, it is the responsibility of Russia because... Russia is still waging war against Ukraine, is continuously attacking indiscriminately, um, also civilian mm. um, civilian um, targets. So as long as that uh, is not going to stop, there will always be a danger of escalation. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Again, um, Dr. Eileen Metley is Research Fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. It's always great to hear from, from German research fellows and, and experts. Thank you very much for having me on. It was my pleasure. And I, I hope my answers did shed some light on what's Germany, what German, Germany's Zeitmende is on what, what Germany is sort of in the process of doing um, at the moment. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks.